As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. We bring you news and analysis every day on the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. But now you can get the latest news on demand whenever you want. Subscribe to Bloomberg News Now to get the latest headlines at the click of a button. Get informed on your schedule. You can listen and subscribe to Bloomberg News Now on the Bloomberg Business app, Bloomberg.com, plus Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Search Bloomberg News Now and subscribe today. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Whether you agree or disagree with John Bolton, read his Telegraph article, which sets up the region and Iran as we look at a fractured Eastern Mediterranean. He's a former United States ambassador to the United Nations, former national security advisor, and a fractious relationship with President Trump. Ambassador Bolton, thank you so much for joining Bloomberg uh, today. Glad I'm not, to be with you. I'm, I'm going to mince words, John. You go back to an internship with a guy named Spiro T. Agnew. You have seen it all. How is this different from 1967 and 1973? Well, I think in Washington, uh, we really are suffering from an acute lack of leadership and, and by a lot of people who forget that they were sent here not to represent themselves, but to represent the country. You know, you remember back in the in the, in the British Parliament in, in uh, World War II when the labor leader got up after one of uh, Neville Chamberlain's acts of appeasement and said he was there to speak for the labor leader who was not around. And Leo Amory, a conservative MP, got up and said, speak for England. And what we need people in Washington to be doing is speaking for America. And sadly, they're not. To look back with 2020 vision, how did we get here within the administration that you served in recently, the Trump administration? Do we have these evil and difficult events because we were off the watch one and three and five years ago? Yeah, look, I, I think we have failed to see what's been happening uh, in, in the Middle East coherently for close to 20 years now. And I think at the root of it, the principal threat to peace and security in the Middle East today and for some years back has been Iran. Uh, in, in the current circumstance, uh, they're the ones who have armed and trained and equipped and financed Hamas. They've done the same with Palestinian Islamic Jihad. They've done the same with Hezbollah. They've done the same with the Syrian military. And remember just yesterday, demonstrating again, they've done it with the Houthi rebels in Yemen. Uh, a U.S. destroyer in the Red Sea destroyed several cruise missiles and I think some drones heading north uh, in the Red Sea, probably toward Israel. So the Houthis wouldn't have two rocks to rub together if it weren't for the equipment Iran has given them. Iran is the central 
factor here. And last night, the president's address, which was fine as far as it went, did not address that crucial point. How can you have a strategy if you don't know what the main threat is? Who's more vulnerable right now, Iran or Israel? Well, I think at the moment it's uh, it's Israel, but I think Israel's perfectly equipped to deal with this on their own. And I, I hope I hope they haven't lost the, the spirit they once had, which is they will defend themselves. They can do it alone. Uh, they can use weapons, but they don't expect anybody else to come and fight their battles for them, nor, nor do they expect to take direction from anybody else either. And I do think there's something to the argument that that a bear hug that uh, President Biden gave Bibi Netanyahu was not just affection, but an effort to uh, insert himself into Israeli decision making. Frankly, I'd rather have Netanyahu make the decisions than Biden. If you're faced with a threat like we've seen in Hamas and, and the deeper threat, the real threat from Iran, you know, you can live with it for a long time until you die from it. And uh, and that's why I think the government of Israel and I think even more than that, perhaps the people of Israel intend to see the Hamas threat eliminated in the Gaza Strip. A lot of people are saying that one of the big sticking points for the U.S. going more aggressively after Iran right now is, A, it would cause an even bigger conflagration, and putting that genie back in the bottle is very difficult. B, you have a population in Iran that actually supports the United States and Israel to a large degree and doesn't necessarily agree with the uh, the government positions. And number three, oil prices would surge, and that would be a problem for the global economy. How important is that third factor to take into consideration? Look, I think the concern the White House has for, for rising oil prices is in the United States. They're worried about November of next year. That's why they signed this, this, uh, this atrocious agreement with uh, Maduro in Venezuela to pretend that he's going to have free elections uh, and, and to allow U.S. sanctions on the export of Venezuelan oil to disappear. I think they're desperate not to uh, have oil prices go up. The easy way, of course, would be to allow more oil production in the United States, but they don't want to do that because mm -hmm. if the oil industry here got stronger, it would be harder to dismantle for their green agenda. The, the, the real question is, do you want to deal with the threat from Iran or do you want to pretend that it doesn't exist? The administration... Uh, has gone out of its way right. to pretend that it doesn't exist, including uh, its chief Iran negotiator, Rob Malley, being sus having his security clearance suspended in April by the State Department's uh, Diplomatic Security Bureau. The, the chief negotiator under security investigation. Right. It's just unbelievable. John, my book of the year is Robert D. Kaplan's The Loom of Time, which stretches from Morocco all the way over to Persia. And the answer here, Ambassador Bolton, is we have to carve out a relationship with friends within the Middle East. How do we prosecute a new strategy with Sunni Saudi Arabia versus Shia Iran, which you consider to be our major threat? Well, I think the threat is the regime in Iran. I, I don't have any quarrel with the Iranian people. We, we've had good relations with them before. And I think one reason uh, that Iran took this opportunity now, and coincidentally, the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War, is they were very worried that the strategic closeness between the Gulf Arab states in particular and Israel uh, might be reaching a point where they could no longer affect it. So that this for them, for Iran, uh, for the mullahs in Tehran was a critical moment to act. I think things were moving in the right direction. In fact, I think if you ask the Gulf Arabs 
uh, they have greater faith in Israel's strategic right. vision of the region than they do with the United States. John Bolton, one final question. What is the new isolationism of America? We want to run from this to a great extent. That's what the polling says. There's certain domestic tensions. Are we isolationist as we await for this war? Not yet, but there are two factors causing it. One is Donald Trump, uh, and I think he's had a, a pervasive effect, sad to say, in the Republican Party. The second is, for many years, our politicians have not treated our citizens like adults and told them what the threats are that we face in the world. I think if you talk to citizens uh, like they're, they're, they are adults, they'll understand the threat. They'll do what we've always done as Americans and find ways to defend ourselves. If you act like the rest of the world doesn't matter, when suddenly find that it does, it's no wonder people are surprised if their leaders have been negligent. John Bolton, thank you for joining Bloomberg Surveillance this morning. Ambassador Bolton, a former national security advisor. You know, Mira Pandit over at J.P. Morgan Asset Management has been covering this, has been discussing this, has been trying to understand the relationship, the new relationship between bonds and stocks. What do you make of the relative resilience in equities this week? It's the moves that we're seeing in bond yields and the weakening that we're seeing along around the margins, as Harmon was just talking about. Clearly, 5% yields are a bit of a ceiling for the equity market. We've been waiting to find exactly what that ceiling seems to be, and I think that's where we are with 5% rates. But the challenge is not necessarily where yields are um, because growth is still so strong. I mean, 18 months ago, two years ago, if I told you in the fall of 2023, policy rates will be above 5%, but economic growth will be tracking above 5%, we wouldn't know what to make of it. And so if you link that stronger economic activity with earnings and earnings being well supported by that, then what you're seeing is some well supported equity markets for now. The challenge is, as we look forward to next year with 12% earnings growth expected, that's pretty lofty. Maybe we'll see something closer to 6 or 7%. But if the U.S. economy slows, if some of these headwinds that are challenging consumers continue to materialize, that's going to challenge some of those expectations for profits. And that in and of itself could be a bigger challenge for the equity markets going forward. Are you getting any clarity from the companies that are reporting earnings? Are you getting the sense that they have a vision forward of what their corporate outlooks are going to be next year? It's, it's mixed. On the one hand, it's been great to, to forecast a recession for 18 months because it means that companies have had 18 months to prepare from an expense, from a headcount standpoint, to really bolster where they're getting their revenue and, and really assess their consumer segments. Um, on the other hand, look, we don't know necessarily how next year is going to play out, and I think the bank earnings were very telling. Usually what you'll hear from financial companies is, here's right. how we're thinking about recession risk. But instead, what we really heard was, here's how we're thinking about the big, meaty, existential macro risks from geopolitics right. to federal finances. So it was very interesting to hear them a little bit less focused on what does 2024 do as opposed to what is the era that we are entering. What are your clients, high net worth institutions, people with a pot of gold, how are they responding to these bond losses? Are they going to cash? Are they running? What are they, are they buying doubloons? What are they doing? It's been really challenging to have multiple down years for the bond market. and Three years down plus is on the Bloomberg Total Return Index. Absolutely. And I think that people need to reconsider their fixed income what allocations. What are they doing? I want to know on a Friday morning, are they, you know, the, the calls you're having, they're swearing at Bob Michael, et cetera, et cetera. What are they actually doing with these bond losses? Writing them out? 
Essentially some of that, but I think that a lot of our clients were not positioned heavily in long duration yet. I think a lot of people were waiting for the entry point, deploying selectively. So there's still very much a barbell within fixed income allocations where you still see a lot of short duration. I think people feel okay about the equity market given how well it's done. But in terms right. of diversification, you're definitely seeing people asking a lot more uh, questions about alternatives and where to supplement some of these outcomes. How far out is long duration? I mean, you say short duration. I have no idea. What, is that five years, seven? Is that the belly of the curve? I mean, where, where is short duration besides LIBOR three months? I think people have been thinking more around the two year, two maybe year. Th- okay. two, three years, and intermediate is really five to seven. People have not really been <clears throat> thinking much about beyond that for, for the time but being. But we love the, t- we're guilty. You and I, you're the worst. I'm awful. We're guilty of this because we're quoting a 30 year bond. We're all going <laughs> Nobody's oh, buying it. Nobody owns it. <laughs> exactly. Which is like quoting the 100 year Austria piece. Uh, Vera, you know, you raised a great point where you said it's telling that some of these corporate executives are coming on and they're talking about macro risks rather than we're a little concerned that we might see a bit of a softer demand in this particular sector of our business, which raises the question, do they just see dynamism as far as the eye can see and they don't necessarily want to uh, get ahead of their skis? Is there kind of a binary outcome where you get bonds underperforming and stocks outperforming? You either have that or you have stocks underperforming and bonds outperforming. And it's one or the other based on the idea that the only thing that could drive bond yields lower is a true full-blown recession that nobody is looking for right now. Yeah, I mean, it does seem like a very much a binary outcome at this point, which from an investor standpoint is helpful from how we construct portfolios, thinking about being diversified between stocks and bonds and sort of that yin and yang in terms of how they typically operate. So as much as people are saying diversification is falling apart, I do think the bigger driver of that was we had an inflation spike, we had all of these Fed hikes, as the Fed is very much moving from power to finesse on the rate hiking cycle and really getting towards the finish line, that dynamic is going to be less prevalent in the new year, but it, it will be a bit of a tug of war. And that's what we're seeing now. Challenge in the bond market, success in the, in the equity market relatively. How much is a new hedge oil? And I ask this at a time of great geopolitical uncertainty and, and conflict. There is this feeling that whatever happens, oil prices and oil equities seem to be the big winner of this year. Are you leaning into that? We are leaning into the energy side of that trade. Certainly what we're seeing from a profit standpoint is that is helping energy companies. And ultimately, there are some structural underpinnings of this in terms of underinvestment in, term, in terms of some of the capex and the, the supply factors uh, that we're seeing within the energy space within the U.S. and globally. Uh-huh. And, and I think if we look more broadly as well, I point to what one thing Chair Powell mentioned yesterday, which was, are we headed for an era of more supply shocks? Is this kind of the pandemic aftershock that we're getting over? Or is this a new structural era where supply shocks yeah. play in more than demand? Interesting. I love in your note, you have a single sentence. It's about companies. You're going right back. There's a book none of you have read, Graham, Graham Dodd and Cottle, folks. Sold a few copies. We're going right back to securities analysis, aren't we? Like pick a stock. Absolutely. I mean, look at earnings so far. You've had a, a small number of banks report, a small number of tech companies report, and some pretty divergent outcomes there. And it's very much what are companies doing specifically to manage their headwinds. See how headwinds. she finessed that? Do you see how she just finessed the divergent outcome of banks? You know, being at Fortress Diamond, she just finessed that perfectly. You're going to try to put her on the spot and make her uncomfortable. Mira, thank you so much. I'm not going to let you have that sort of fall. Mira Pandit, who I really like, who I really like, and so I don't want you to go there and put her on the spot with something she can't answer or speak to. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, 
to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Right now, always tense is Greg Vallier, our chief U.S. policy strategist at AGF Investments. His note in the mornings early is a must read. Greg, it's not a layup in a fractured Congress. We just heard the gentleman from Ohio speak moments ago. We heard some of the tensions there from the Democrat Stevens of Michigan as well. What will be the process to deliver $100 billion to three or four projects? It could take a while, Tom. I mean, I think the case for aid to Israel and Ukraine is self-evident, but apparently that's that's not a view shared by a lot of people on Capitol Hill. The problem is things are so dysfunctional in the House. Without a House speaker, it could take weeks before Israel and Ukraine get more assistance. And I think the signal that we'll be sending to our allies and our adversaries is not a very good one. Howard Baker could get together with Tip O'Neill, just as one example. Is there any ability to get the center tendency to meet in the middle aisle? I I think eventually that will happen. Eventually the center will hold. Uh, Mitch McConnell will play a role in this. Uh, There are plenty of people in both parties who feel strongly we've got to spend more money on both of these these horrible conflicts. But it's going to get dragged out. The, The next deadline that I look at is November 17th. That's when we got to get a budget. And if they don't get a budget, they're going to have to do another extension, probably past Christmas into late winter. If we have to wait that long for aid to Israel, that's uh, that's very troubling, in my opinion. Greg, we're talking about a new level of dysfunction, as some people have pointed out. Anne-Marie was talking about some of the threats that have gotten actually violent to some of the center tendency Republicans who are not voting for Jim Jordan. Is there a precedent for this type of thing? Well, during the Civil War, there have been very you know, emotional periods in the country's history, Vietnam War. But but this is an embarrassment. Uh, what's going on in the in the House is a cringe-inducing to see this kind of dysfunction. And, and I think that, again, our, our foreign allies and adversaries have to be looking at the U.S. thinking that we're starting to go off the rails. How much do you think that this is actually one of the drumbeats that has led up to multiple nodes of conflict that are permeating in many places around the world? This idea that there is increasing fracture around the governments. And I'm thinking in the U.S., I'm thinking in Israel, uh, with the uh, prime minister being incredibly controversial. I'm thinking about in other places as well. Yeah, I, I think that 
it makes a lot of countries around the world less inclined to wholeheartedly support us, thinking how dependable is the U.S.? Is what we're seeing in the House going to be standard behavior? Uh, again, I, I think we're going down a very risky path. Right now, we're actually anticipating something from a meeting between the European uh, Commission and the European Union presidents, as well as President Biden today. How closely are you watching that to understand just how close this connection is, even with some of the disagreements over trade and steel? I think they'll say all the expected things. I, I think they'll try to paper over their differences, but I think privately uh, there's going to be a real candor saying the U.S. has to be concerned about the way that we're perceived right now. Uh, Greg Villiers, we have John Bolton coming up, always controversial. Yep. He's been a magnet for debate and controversy in America. And in an essay here, he really centers away from the trauma of Gaza, the immediacy of Gaza, towards a triangulation of Gaza, West Bank, and the northern border of Israel and alludes to Iran's ring of fire. Yep. What is the debate in Washington over what to do about Iran? I don't, I don't observe one. I, I think it's, it started last weekend. The Wall Street Journal's weekend publication, which is great, it's a must read, talked about the need for regime change in Iran. Uh, you're starting to hear people talk about that. That's very risky. But I, I think there's a growing Wrong. feeling that, that the Iranians are the provocateurs to a certain extent uh, for Hezbollah and for Hamas. Greg, that didn't work out in uh, uh, Baghdad a few decades ago. Yep. I mean, it seems like yesterday for you and me. But we don't prosecute regime change very well, do we? No, but it's perhaps the lesson not learned. Uh, in fact, I would guarantee you, Tom, that in your interview with Bolton, if you ask him about the, the possibility or the need for regime change, he will advocate it. I mean, Lisa, to me, this is just absolutely extraordinary. And it's what Ambassador Bolton's doing, whatever anyone's politics is, is trying to get beyond the shock of the immediacy of Gaza. And that is, what do we reformulate with Iran three months from now, six months from now? five years from now. Regime change is uh, a bit dramatic at a time when a lot of people are wondering just where the actual people stand. A lot of people have been protesting the Iranian administration. I am curious, though, Greg, from your vantage point, how much oil plays into this and the unwillingness of the U.S. to really go after Iran. We were speaking with Dan Tenenbaum earlier this morning, and he said that's a key measure. It's a key reason why the U.S. hasn't taken a harder line. Is that your view as well? I think that's a factor. I think another big factor, Lisa, is how fragile support is if the U.S. got even more involved uh, with the naval cruisers and a lot more weapons for Israel. I think a lot of U.S. voters, especially young people, are lukewarm at best uh, toward getting involved in this. So how much did President Biden's speech last night hearken to a different time and speak to a different well, audience than the mainstream that will be voting in the upcoming election? You know, Lisa, I just kept thinking one thing. Lyndon Johnson, uh, back in the late 60s, who made a case to confront uh, Vietnam, North Vietnam, it, it didn't succeed. He failed politically. And we've got another big primary only about a year away, maybe 14 months away, uh, up in New Hampshire. I think if uh, Robert Kennedy does well, if, if Joe Biden doesn't do well, there's going to be speculation that the war is an albatross for the Democrats and might warrant a, a look at whether Biden should stay on the ticket. Greg Vallier, thank you so much with AGF Investments.
Alex Brazier joins us now, Deputy Head of the BlackRock Investment Institute. Alex, great to catch up with you, sir, as always. Let's start here because I know you and the team have put out a note in the last few days about the tectonic shifts that we've witnessed in the global economy and in markets as well. Alex, this regime, how different is this regime going to be to years, decades gone by? Very, I think, is the short answer. You know, you were debating earlier the end of the great moderation. We're pretty clear. We have seen the end of the great moderation. And that reflects a different geopolitical environment, a different macro environment. And markets are beginning to catch up with some of that. But they're not really catching up with the fact that, for example, the geopolitical environment has changed absolutely fundamentally. And even if we can't spot the triggers ahead for geopolitical events, including around the Middle East now, we know that over the next 10 years, the average supply shock facing the global economy as a result of that is going to be negative in the same way that for the last 20 years it was positive. So central banks are going to find themselves fighting inflation much more often, even as we get out of this episode. Alex, you did a tour of duty at the Bank of England on financial stability. It's not appropriate for you to discuss the executive dynamics and the performance dynamics of BlackRock, but you can advise on a bond route that every portfolio of BlackRock, every portfolio Rick Reader and company has, they're all south. How do you advise your team this weekend on the instability or stability of the bond system? Well, we've actually been underweight for many years, the long end of the US curve. We saw two things needing to happen. One was a repricing of the average level of policy rates as we go into this regime where central banks are going to be fighting inflation more often. And the other was a repricing of the term premium, which is now taking centre stage uh, in the market debate. Those things are now beginning to happen. And we've reached a level, we think, where we've become a bit more neutral in the short term. We see risks now in both directions. But still, over strategic horizons, we remain underweight the long end because there's still not that much term premium. And this is an environment where you've got weaker trend growth, higher level of policy rates, the fiscal dynamics are very difficult as a result, and that's an environment that demands a term premium. Alex, earlier to this year, we were talking to a number of bond strategists who said 2.5% on the real yield was basically the tipping point, where stocks would sell off and it would be this reinforcing cycle. Are you saying that that's not true, that we could get to a 3%, we could get to a 3.5% and be a more accurate term structure for the economy as you see it? Well, over the longer term, certainly, we could go higher from here as the term premium gets re-established. But I think it's important to note that as the term premium gets re-established, that's not necessarily bad news for equities. What's strange up to this point is that policy rates have been, or future expectations of policy rates have been repriced. And yet we haven't seen the equity market really respond very decisively to that in aggregate. So does that mean to you, Alex, that returns going forward aren't necessarily going to be reduced, but the stocks are just going to have higher multiples, that they're going to be a better engine of growth and reliable counterweight to inflation and a higher term premium type of structure for bonds? Well, I think you see two features favoring equities in the long term. You've, you've listed both of them there. But I, I also would note that even if it's a challenging environment, <clears throat> the end of the great moderation, it's a challenging environment for broad risk asset exposures. Actually, the drivers of the end of the the great moderation, whether that's geopolitics or the energy transition or demographic change, they're all big mega forces changing the way our economy works. And we're much more interested in those now as sources of return in, in portfolios. Alex, I'm absolutely fascinated on a broader view. And again, with your tour of duty at the Bank of England, if with the great moderation over, as you stated, are we going to have an actuarial reset 
of our generation or frankly multiple generations. Do we need to start thinking about a bond reset to a higher required return for pension investments? I don't know whether it's a higher required return, but we're definitely having a reset to a higher actual return environment. And this, by the way, is why it's strange that equity multiples in aggregate haven't yet adjusted to what's happened in the bond market. We see yields remaining at close to these levels over the long term, as the ter maybe higher as the term premium gets reestablished, because we're going into an environment now where the Fed, other developed market central banks are going to be leaning against looser fiscal policy than they were in the past. Mm -hmm. And they're going to be fighting, on average, these negative supply shocks, whether that's energy prices, other geopolitical shocks, or demographic-related labor supply shocks. So returns are going to be higher once we get through this adjustment. We're seeing that now in the bond market. We're going to need to see higher returns in the equity market and a range of other markets as well in the future. Alex, just quickly, when you and the team use that phrase long term, how many years is that? What are you thinking about? Well, in a strategic portfolio, we're looking five years and out. In a tactical portfolio, we're looking over the next 12 months. And we see over the next 12 months the risks in the long end more balanced. But beyond that 12 months, mm. we still see the term premium grinding higher. So when you say high for longer, you're actually thinking about high for maybe over the next five years. Absolutely. And I think that what's interesting in the way the Fed debate has gone is as people have focused on reaching the peak, the market has then begun to shift its attention to, well, what does the future look like? Where do we go back to as inflation comes down? And actually, that, we think that's a lot higher than we were pre-pandemic, partly because of the fiscal position, partly because of the energy transition, which is driving higher investment, and partly because, as I say, central banks are going to be, on average, facing supply shocks where they're constantly needing to push down on inflation, which means holding rates, on average, tight. Fascinating. Alex, thank you. Alex Brazier there of BlackRock. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. We are going to give you a terrific brief, as we did before, on this bond debacle. She has lived it. Deborah Cunningham joins us, Global Liquidity Market CIO at a massive bond house, Federated Hermes, with all of their experience at money market funds. Deborah, I'm not going to mince words. All my radar's up, and my lesson on radar is to go to trust in liquidity. Into the weekend, is there trust in the system? Is there liquidity within the system? 
There are both at this point, Tom. I think, you know, as Lisa was mentioning, this economy has a huge mosaic of factors that are inputs to what's happening in the overall market. You know, what the strength in the economy is, what the the yield curves are doing, uh, currencies, all of those things. And ultimately, the liquidity markets and liquidity in the broader markets seems to still be resilient and have strength going into the weekend. Deborah, we were talking earlier in the show, at what point do we reach a tipping point where all of the investors who have just hoarded cash in 5% yielding funds start to say, you know what, we actually are worried about locking in some of uh, the repricing risk on the longer end of the curve. Have you started to see that on the margins? You know, Lisa, we challenge ourselves with that every single day. Should we get longer? Should we go into other products? Should our advice to clients be going into and locking in some of these longer yields? Um, And we think the beginning of that process has started to occur. Certainly, we've started to see some pickup from a bond flow perspective, um, but not in mass yet. And I think that's because we finally have a bond market. And, you know, we saw the statistics that are are 10-year, 30-year, 2-year, types of yields that are above or approaching 5%, uh, we finally have a bond market that is reconciled with the fact that the Fed speak out there for the last year, higher for longer, is truthful. It's what's happening. Don't expect something different. But Deborah, what do you make of the fact that we're not seeing some sort of race toward 10-year, 30-year bonds at 5% yields at a time of great geopolitical concern, at a time where people are looking for haven trades to protect against possible unrest. Does that send a pretty powerful and deeper signal to you? I think it's, it, it sends the signal that we're still not sure if inflation is reined in to the point where the Fed is comfortable in maintaining a yield that, you know, is for, for a, an extended period of time without going higher. Certainly, Chair Powell and other Fed speak is leaning in that direction. But we don't see, I, I don't think that what we're seeing from an inflationary perspective is 100% confirming of that. I mean, you were mentioning the, the auto strikes. That can be, um, you know, a negative from an inflationary perspective, both from a wage inflation as well as from a vehicle inflation. We don't know how that is going to impact us. Um, you have issues from, you know, the conflict in the Middle East. What does that do from an oil inflationary and an energy perspective? There are so many unknowns out there from an inflationary standpoint that I think people will continue to be tentative until some of the, you know, the the fog in that picture starts to clear. Deborah, Friday, as you well know, in federated land means do Frank Fabozzi, the giant of teaching us about fixed income dynamics. Let's do it right now. The conceit into the end of the year is mark to market. We're not mark to market and we'll just hold it out to maturity. Baloney. It's just baloney. If I've got a 10-year piece, how far out is my break point where things fall apart, where the idea, the conceit of holding it forever falls to pieces? Well, it really depends on, you know, what what the coupon is on that 10-year piece. You know, if it's a 5% coupon that you just bought recently or a four and a half, um, it's it's probably not that lengthy of a holding period. If it's something you bought a year or two ago and has, you know, yields that are several hundred basis points below that, you're not you're not breaking even at any point in the near term. Um, You know, I think from a bond 
investor perspective, it's hard to get off yield. Yield has been what has ruled the ruled the roost in, in bond land okay. forever. But total return is very, very impactful and needs to be considered as well. Thank you. This is incredibly important. So let's go again to Frank Fabozzi and the idea that we are switching from a yield mindset to a price mindset. How will that affect institutional bond buy side? I think what you're going to see is resistance to that. Um, but as the resistance starts to fade, you'll you know, you'll you'll, pe- you'll see people lumping back in to the bond market because what the downside risk is with yields above five percent is much less than the downside risks when 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 yields were at 3%. So coupon clipping from that part of the the the, the total return uh, should help get you through some of the price risk that you still may experience. All in all though, you have to have a time frame that's longer than 3 to 6 months. You need to be thinking about something that's, you know, more in years for that type of thought process. Deborah, thank you. Deborah Cunningham there at Federated Hermes. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.